This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 158th edition of the program. Today is August 30th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, and that includes Andrew Ligori, Arthur Morris, Colton R. Dean, Franklin J.C. Walbrown, G. Gibson, Julie Padilla, Neva Francis, Robert Schwartz, Stefan Orvar Sigmundson, Stephanie Threat, and Tossin Object 2 with a special message that says, Venezuela. Venezuela. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals for supporting the podcast. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, we'll talk about why we may be witnessing the beginning of the end of Donald Trump's presidency. And in that discussion, we will talk about one of his latest allies that decided to flip and why I think that's a pretty big deal. Now, additionally, we'll talk about his decision to loosen the rules of engagement in Yemen, which means that there will be even more civilian casualties there. Also, the DNC recently overhauled their undemocratic superdelegate system, so we'll talk about that and what the implications are. And while we're on the subject of the DNC, I'll tell you about the tantrum that some salty superdelegates threw when they were forced to accept the reality that they can no longer undermine the will of voters. We'll also talk about John McCain's legacy, how the human rights campaign is fighting to stop Cynthia Nixon, a gay woman, how Bernie Sanders is trying to end corporate welfare to companies like Amazon, and the number of Republicans that now support Medicare for All. And additionally on the program, Verizon was caught brazenly violating net neutrality. And finally on the program, Bill Maher decided to have war criminal John Brennan on the program, and of course he kissed his ass. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today. I hope you guys enjoy the program. All those in favor say aye. Opposed? The eyes overwhelmingly have it, and the report and the chart, the call, is adopted. So as you might have heard by now, we actually got some surprisingly good news coming out of the DNC of all places over the last weekend. So to the chagrin of the Democratic Party's elites, the DNC actually surprisingly voted to overhaul their brazenly undemocratic superdelegate system. And this is a huge step in the right direction. So according to Asti W. Herndon of the New York Times, he states under the new plan, which was agreed to on Saturday afternoon in Chicago at the Democratic National Committee's annual summer meetings, superdelegates retain their power to back any candidate regardless of how the public votes. They will now be largely barred, however, from participating in the first ballot of the presidential nominating process at the party's convention, drastically diluting their power. Superdelegates will be able to cast substantive votes only in extraordinary cases, like contested conventions, in which the nomination process is extended through multiple ballots until one candidate prevails. 
So if they're no longer voting on the first ballot, then that essentially means that they're probably not really going to be able to have an impact unless, as the article states, there's extraordinary circumstances. So there hasn't been a second ballot for decades, as far as we all know. So it seems as though their power is essentially gone. They can no longer unilaterally undermine the will of voters. And well, for, for the most part, right? It's not perfect. It is a compromise. But Another good thing about this is that even if a superdelegate commits to support a particular candidate, like, say, Hillary Clinton, as they did in 2016, well, that candidate can no longer use the backing of superdelegates to inflate their overall delegate lead. And that's really good because when that happens, that demoralizes voters. It gets them to think that, oh, well, you know what? This candidate's lead is insurmountable, so there's really no point in me voting. So, this is a huge step in the right direction. Now, I want to go to CNN's Adam Levy, who gives us a little bit more information and states, beginning with the 2020 nomination process, candidates will no longer be able to count superdelegates if they want to win the party's nomination on the first ballot of voting at the convention. This makes it impossible for superdelegates to change the outcome of the pledged delegates' will, which has never occurred since superdelegates were created ahead of the 1984 campaign. Now, in that particular paragraph, there was this subtle implication that superdelegates, you know, they weren't really ever that important to begin with. They never actually swayed an election. And I think that the implication there was that, look, overall, this reform, it was unnecessary because superdelegates have been inconsequential forever, basically. And even though that's true from a technical standpoint, it's still the case that superdelegates were harmful to progressives because, as I stated, they were used to demoralize Bernie Sanders supporters and make it seem as though Hillary Clinton's lead was so high that voting for Bernie didn't even matter. I mean, if you couldn't get out to vote for him, well, it was probably the case that Hillary Clinton was going to win anyway because she had such a huge lead when you include superdelegates. And even though that was never explicitly said by anyone that you shouldn't vote for Bernie because Hillary's lead is insurmountable, that was still the takeaway for a lot of progressives and overall, it proved that superdelegates were very harmful. So, I mean, this is good. This is good news, even if individuals within that DC bubble can't see how this is beneficial to progressives. It is beneficial to progressives. Yes, of course, we're, nobody's saying that superdelegates have undermined the will of voters and overthrew their choice and, you know, went against pledge delegates. But at the same time... The fact that they exist is an affront to democracy, but the fact that they're being used to demoralize progressives is reason alone why we shouldn't have them. Now, even though superdelegates is probably the, mo the most uh, important reforms to come out of this vote, there were other things that the DNC did that was actually beneficial. They had caucus overhauls, so caucuses have also undergone some changes as well. The party is officially encouraging states to use government-run primaries, give access to people who can't make the actual caucus, like shift workers, those with disabilities and language difficulties, implement same-day party change and voter registration, report statewide presidential preferences on the first vote, and ensure that all national delegates represent the same original vote for the first caucus vote. Transparency. The DNC is now required to be more transparent on operations, finances, and dealings with Democratic presidential candidates, such as in providing information on fundraising and vendor agreements. Information about these things things should be made available to all Democratic candidates, the language says. So, these are things that were fought for by 
progressive lions like Namiki Konst and Nina Turner, and it was their hard work and dedication that accomplished all this. So, even though it's the case that these are compromises, they had to work with Hillary Clinton supporters in order to get these reforms, even if it's the case that the DNC should absolutely have gone further and just abolished superdelegates altogether, Republicans don't have them, there's no reason why the Democratic Party, with democracy in its fucking name for Christ's sake, should have them. So of course, this doesn't go far enough, but at the same time, this is a win for us. This is a huge step in the right direction, and I am incredibly thankful to people like Nimiki Konst and Nina Turner, who worked their asses off to make this happen. I am so happy that we have these types of individuals on our side. They not only crafted these reforms, but they campaigned for them, and they held the DNC's feet to the fire to get these accomplished. So I'm I'm incredibly thankful to them. This is surprising. I Look, I'm a cynic, right? I, I'm very skeptical. I am deeply, deeply cynical of anything the DNC does. I honestly didn't expect that they would vote for superdelegate reforms because they were dragging their feet with it. I thought it was inevitable that they're, they'd come up with some bullshit excuse to not vote on this. But look, I, I stand corrected and I'm, I'm proven wrong and I'm thankful to be proven wrong in this instance. Now, there were a plethora of other reforms that they voted on. Um, with varying levels of importance that aren't really being discussed. For example, individuals with non-binary gender identities now no longer have to declare that they're either male or female in order to comply with gender equality mandates that the DNC has for committees and whatnot. I don't think that there's anybody on the DNC that actually has a non-binary gender, so this probably won't be applicable to anyone just yet, but I mean, it's still, you know, it's a step in the right direction. But also, there's one change that could have a significant impact that nobody's really talking about. The problem is that a lot of people aren't talking about it because there's not much information out there about this particular change that was recently adopted alongside the superdelegate reform. And here's what CNN says about that. Declaring yourself Democrat. Candidates seeking the party's presidential nomination will now have to declare themselves as Democrats in writing to the DNC, a change pointed at Sanders, who is technically an independent senator that caucuses with the Democrats. Now, obviously, that's incredibly vague. Um, and as far as we know, all that means is that if Bernie Sanders does want to run in the Democratic Party again and compete in the Democratic Party primary in 2020, he simply has to declare that he's a Democrat in writing. But at the same time, when you actually look at the language used, it's it's pretty troubling, I'm not going to lie. So Appendix E of the DNC Charter now reads, Pursuant to Article 4 of the call for the 2020 Democratic National Convention, I hereby affirm that upon publicly announcing my candidacy for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States, I am a member of the Democratic Party. I will run as a Democrat, accept the nomination of my party, and I will serve as a Democrat if elected. I understand that signing this form does not supplant any legal or party requirement by any state or territory to qualify for ballot placement in that jurisdiction. Further, I acknowledge, and here's the big part, that the national chairperson of the Democratic National Committee is authorized to determine whether a presidential candidate has established substantial support for their nomination as the Democratic candidate for the office of the President of the United States is a bona fide Democrat whose record of public service accomplishments, public writings, and or public statements affirmatively demonstrate that the candidate is faithful to the interests, welfare, and success of the Democratic Party of the United States and will participate in the convention in good faith. 
So that clause, it kind of gave me pause. Because if you read it at face value, well then, candidates have to agree to imbue Tom Perez with the power to unilaterally nullify the outcome of a particular Democratic Party primary in the event he thinks that that individual was not a faithful Democrat. And what's one of the biggest complaints that we always hear about Bernie Sanders? He's not a Democrat. So does this mean that Tom Perez can simply say, well, look, throughout his career, he's never been a Democrat, so I don't believe he's, you know, he's faithfully able to represent the party's interests, therefore I'm nullifying the results of this race. I mean, certainly that would be an extreme interpretation of this, but another part of me questions whether or not this is just them stopping Bernie from winning the Democratic Party nomination and rejecting it and then running as an independent so they won't put up a Democratic competitor. This is what he does in Vermont every time. He wins by running as a Democrat, and then he rejects their nomination and then runs as an independent. So maybe it's just the case that the DNC is trying to stop Bernie Sanders from doing that. Or maybe it's the case that they are giving Tom Perez some power to nullify the outcome of a Democratic Party primary in the event somebody wins, like Bernie Sanders, who they don't want to win. And at this point, it's really difficult to know how this will look in practice. We don't know what this is going to look like. But when you go back to earlier this year, when this was being discussed, well, one member of the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee named Elaine Kamark was saying that actually, yeah, the DNC chairperson does have the authority to not seat a candidate's pledged delegates at the convention. And this can be based on whether or not they're a member of the party or not. This is what she said. How is that enforced? How is that enforced? Enforced, so... Well, okay, so ultimately the enforcement is, and we talked about this at the last meeting, um, the chairman can say that nobody, no delegates elected pursuant to this person um, who's not a Democrat will be seated at the convention, and that's what um, Chairman Powell did for Linda LaRouche delegates in 1996. And then, as we remember, that case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court affirmed the authority of the chairman of the party to make that determination. So the ultimate determination is, in other words, the party chairman already has the power to say not to a state that you can't put your name on the ballot, because that's state but they can say, okay, uh, Mr. LaRouche, you filed in the New Hampshire primary. Um, we are not going to see any delegates that you win out of that primary. So they already have that power. And I think if we say clearly here that they have to affirm that they're part of the Democratic Party, meet these other qualifications, um, this gives a chairman a little bit more um, ground to stand on if they should have to do something. The national chairman. So essentially, she was explaining that there's actually legal precedent for the chairperson to not seat a candidate's delegates that they won at the convention. And if you've won the delegates needed to secure the nomination and they don't seat those delegates and they can't vote for you, then what does that mean? That means that the candidate loses and that could be based on the chairperson and they can't be sued for that. They can't be legally um, liable if they choose to not seat Bernie Sanders' delegates, for instance. But at the same time, again... I don't want to interpret 
that in the most extreme way, in the worst case scenario, because it could just simply mean that if Bernie Sanders runs as a Democrat and wins, then he can't declare his independence after he runs in their primary. So I don't know, and that's an incredibly vague statement, but the cynic in me wants to assume the worst because we're talking about the DNC. Even if they just voted to dilute the power of superdelegates, well, chances are they're already thinking about other ways to fuck over Bernie Sanders and progressives in 2020. So I just simply, I fundamentally mistrust everything that they do. But my goal is to bring on Namiki Konst. I've been in talks with her. Hopefully she knows a little bit more about this and can explain what this means. I think that we should all not panic just yet because odds are it's something that's benign. This is what we're hearing from individuals within the DNC who are allied with Sanders. But just be wary of that. I'd rather you have the information and have us be cognizant of it than us just being blindsided. So with that being said, overall, are these reforms all-encompassing? Are we done? Have we reformed the DNC? Of course not. And we've still got a long ways to go. But understand that this is a win and you need to take it as a win because we've been fighting so hard and within two years for them to basically drastically reduce the power of superdelegates that really is monumental and this is due to the constant pressure that progressives have been exerting on the dnc we're not going to win everything and certainly this change it's a it's a compromise all right let's be real this is definitely a compromise but this is still really good news, and again, I was surprised that the DNC did vote on this, and uh, the vote went in our favor. So, it's at the point where I think that on the DNC, the composition at least, you have about 50% progressives, and you have 50% establishment insiders. So, we're close to being able to outvote them all the times, and the reason why we won this and got these reforms that were voted on by the DNC Unity Reform Commission was because individuals like Namiki Konst and Nina Turner lobbied for it. They got Clinton supporters to come on board with these reforms, so we're close to being able to implement more reforms, but at the same time, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, the DNC voted to uh, strike down the ban that they just imposed on fossil fuel contributions. So it's always going to be a constant power struggle between progressives and the establishment. But it, at a time where Donald Trump is the president and progressives have no power, take any win where you can find a win. And this is definitely a win. And it's certainly a cause for celebration because if you've been fighting for this, then you have yourself to thank. Pat yourself on the back and certainly don't forget to thank people like Nina Turner and Namiki Kantz who have been fighting for us and fighting to get this reform voted on, you know, for the good of the people and democracy. So, you know, it's it's a win and I'm going to accept that as a win and uh, I'm going to celebrate. I think this is good news. So, Predictably, there were some members of the DNC that weren't too happy about the fact that they adopted new rules that drastically reduced the power that superdelegates have. And as a result, we got some really unhinged responses that I am now going to share with you so we can all laugh at these individuals who are sad that the establishment is now starting to lose power. So the first person I want to talk about is Bob Mulholland. Now, if you'll recall, Bob Mulholland is the individual 
that actually vocalized his suspicion that this plan to reduce superdelegates may in fact be a Russian plot. And of course, you know, when he heard the news that the DNC actually did adopt these reforms overall, potentially succumbing to the will of Vladimir Putin, according to him, well, he responded in a about the way we expected him to, saying, what I witnessed was a political murder-suicide, said Bob Mulholland, a superdelegate and DNC member from California who helped organize opposition to the proposal. What the DNC voted was to take away the votes of governors, congress members, and take away their own votes too absurd. Now, that's just factually incorrect because members of Congress and governors, they didn't vote to take away their votes. They still get one vote like everyone else. It's just that now they don't have a second vote that's equal in power to 10,000 of our votes. So they don't have the ability to undermine the will of voters. But he states, oh, you know, they're just, they, they took away their vote. No, they took away their second vote. But you see, the reason why he doesn't like this is because these elites, they don't like having the same amount of power as peasants because they think that because they're in the establishment, their voices should be louder. But of course, Bob Mulholland wasn't alone because DNC member Leah Daughtry, who's on the Rules and Bylaws Committee, she actually was one of the individuals that lobbied against this and spoke out against this. And she suggested, not so subtly, that the adoption of these new rules might actually be racist, and I'm not kidding about that. So she released a tweet saying, now that people of color, women, and LGBTQ leaders have a significant say in the nomination process, suddenly the rules need to be changed, effectively eliminating their participation. Funny how that happens. Lucy moves the football again. Hashtag DNC2018. Now, I just want to take a moment to applaud Leah Daughtry there, because that is honestly a level of gaslighting that I'm just impressed by. <laughs> because to be that full of shit and be so confident about it, I mean, I, I don't know what else to do. I, I, I strive to achieve the level of confidence that Leah Daughtry has to just espouse a statement that's so bullshit that anyone can smell it from a mile away. Because think about what she's saying. She's saying that now that people of color and women have a seat at the table, well, suddenly we gotta, we've got to get rid of superdelegates. But what are superdelegates mostly comprised of? Former members of Congress, members of Congress, governors, party elites, elected officials. And can we guess demographically what that group of individuals is predominantly composed of? Say it with me, white people. So trying to weaponize identity politics doesn't even make sense in this particular instance. But of course, that didn't stop Donna Brazil from wholeheartedly agreeing with Leah Daughtry here, even if what she said was complete and utter nonsense. So I want you to notice how they completely flipped this argument on its head. Those of us who are against superdelegates were arguing that these powerful elites who are rich, who are oligarchs, shouldn't be allowed to undermine the will of voters. And their response to that is, well, some of these elites, some of these superdelegates are black. So if you want to get rid of superdelegates, then you must be racist. Okay, well, by that logic, since there are some Republicans who are black, if you want to defeat Republicans, then you must want to defeat black people. Hence, you're racist. Or, since I'm gay and I'm against superdelegates, if you disagree with me, then you must be against the aggregate LGBTQ community. 
I mean, this logic doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But the thing is that they don't have an argument. And when you don't have an argument, you grasp for anything that gives you legitimacy, anything whatsoever, even if it seems absurd to everyone else. And when this happens, this makes these elites look like fools. But I mean, that wasn't the end because Donna Brazil also tweeted out this about the end of superdelegates. Democrats voted to remove automatic delegates from the first round of voting, but we still have seats at the table. We are still in the room and very much capable of setting the menu. Hashtag power rising. In other words, know your place, peasants, because we still have the power to overthrow the will of the people if we want to. Hashtag power rising. You already have power. See, what this is, is we are seeing these dinosaurs grappling with the fact that they're actually going extinct. They're losing power and they don't like that. They don't like the fact that they have the same amount of power as us peasants. They hate that fact. And that's why they are freaking out. They're throwing temper tantrums. They're, com they're coming up with these weird conspiracy theories about how trying to get rid of superdelegates is part of a Russian plot or it's racist because there's absolutely no reasonable argument as to why some individuals should have the power of 10,000 votes. Now, what's great is that Donna Brazil actually got called out by pretty much everyone, but one of those individuals was Jimmy Dore, and she actually responded to him, which was just magical, so I want to read you that exchange. So, Jimmy said, Donna Brazil comforts the powerful over superdelegates, reminding them not to fret as they still have control over party and can nullify will of voters. Hashtag power to the powerful, hashtag the resistance is the assistance. And she, resp <laughs> she responded by saying, please do not speak for me. You can disagree, but I know what I stand for and what I shall never stand in a democracy like ours. The right to vote is sacred, no matter if you are a pledged majority delegate or unpledged minority. We cannot change a perception problem this way. So that's all bullshit. And Jimmy fired back saying, sad to see you double down on your allegiance to your donors and to the powerful over the voters. This is how you lost to Trump and lost. 1,000 seats nationwide and lost the House and the Senate. This is why you are losers. You are servants to money and power. <laughs> uh, that's a long uh, sound bite there. But uh, <laughs> at that point, she stopped responding because there was no way that she was going to win this argument because I think deep down, Donna Brazil knows that she's being unreasonable here. You're expecting that we're supposed to accept the fact that powerful elites have the power to overthrow our will if they don't like the decision that we make. And that's completely unreasonable. It's antithetical to democracy. So if you truly believe in democracy then you, you simply can't hold that stance. And so she had to stop responding to Jimmy Dore because, of course, she has no argument. None of them have an argument, which is why they go to racism, sexism, homophobia, and a Russian plot to overthrow democracy. And understand what she's doing here, and it's particularly disgusting because she is equating the ability of superdelegates to undermine the will of voters with voting in general, when superdelegates are inherently undemocratic and actually do undermine the will of voters. 
And in a 10-minute speech at the DNC, her argument was basically that doing this would disenfranchise elites. Now, since that is a ridiculous argument to make, thankfully, Nina Turner, who was also there, who was lobbying hard to get the DNC to adopt these new reforms, reducing the power of superdelegates, she had the opportunity to make her case, and she decided to debunk this notion that somehow reducing superdelegates and reforming this undemocratic superdelegate system is comparable to disenfranchisement of voters, because it's not. So she said, real voter disenfranchisement is living in a state where you forfeit your rights if you're a felon, Turner said. Real disenfranchisement is officials closing down polling places that disproportionately affect black voters. This is a false equivalency. To talk about something that happens in the DNC and compare it to the hard, bloody fight to secure the franchise in the real world. And that is precisely... Correct. You're not being disenfranchised if you no longer have the power to disenfranchise voters. You have the same amount of voting power as we have now. And understand that you should be thankful that we're even accepting these reforms because it was a compromise. There's no reason why superdelegates should exist at all, but we compromised with you. We decided to reduce the role so they can no longer vote on the first ballot. And we're accepting that. Now, you need to accept that as well. But they don't want to because part of the reason why these people stay in politics until they're, what, 150 years old is because they love power. They cling to power. And once you get a taste of power, you never want to let it go. Once you get to know these powerful people, these mega rich donors, you feel important. You feel special. You feel as though your word means something. And that power is its something that really drives individuals around the world, not just in the U.S. So what we're seeing are these superdelegates grapple with the fact that they no longer have the power to undermine the will of voters. And these tantrums that they're throwing are a result of that. So I'm incredibly thankful that we have people like Nina Turner shutting down these absurd ideas about this being comparable to voter disenfranchisement. Of course, that's not the case. Anyone who's saying that, who's comparing reducing the role of superdelegates to disenfranchising voters, they're not serious. Disenfranchisement of voters is not related to this at all. This is about disenfranchisement in terms of us being able to make our decision and being assured that oligarchs won't undermine our decision and nullify the vote that we make. That's what this is about. They're not the victims, they're the victimizers. And anyone who tells you otherwise is just lying to you. So I think it's safe to say, officially, that when it comes to the national debate surrounding healthcare, progressives have won. Because there's a new poll by Reuters and Ipsos that came out that was honestly shocking, and I, I couldn't believe it. So, as Vice reports, a slim majority of Republicans now want single-payer too. I'll read that to you again. A slim majority of Republicans now want single-payer too. It's over. We convinced the other side, our political opponents, that our plan... Our Medicare for All plan is the way to go. And now they're on board. A majority. So anyone who comes to you and says, now is the time to compromise, let's let's move to you know, a public option and then single payer, 
they're not looking out for your best interests because we don't compromise when we've actually persuaded the other side that we have the right policy. This is huge news. So getting to the article, they explain it's not just Senator Bernie Sanders fanatics and DSA darlings pulling for expanding Medicare and developing a single payer system. Apparently, some Republicans want it too. That's according to a new Reuters Ipsos poll, which found 51.9% of Republicans would embrace a Medicare for all policy out of the 2,989 people who responded to their inquiry of American adults in June and July. The idea also drew support from 84.5% of Democrat respondents who've seen their party swing further left when it comes to healthcare issues. And look, this is this is a solid poll. That sample size of nearly 3,000 respondents is actually fairly large, so that does lead me to believe that the poll itself is accurate um, and reliable. And 51.9% of Republicans saying they support Medicare for All, that's gigantic news. But it's not just that Republicans are now on board, even though I think that's the larger story. It's that the majority of Americans that support Medicare for All overall grew pretty substantially. So now it's the case that the same survey found 70% of the country now supports Medicare for All. We've made our case and we've officially won the debate. All the fear-mongering we see in mainstream media, it hasn't worked because grassroots activists and the conversations that we're all having with our peers about Medicare for All, it clearly resonated. We have the winning argument, it's a common sense argument, and we won the debate. Now it's just a matter of getting our corrupt Congress to pay attention to us and listen to us and stop listening to health insurers and do what we want. 70% of the country. I mean, that is a gigantic majority. And when you even have a majority of the opposing party on board, that's it. It's done. We've won this debate. Now give us what we want. If we live in a representative republic, then represent us. If you truly are representing the will of the people, then you give us the policy that we are asking for. And clearly, the American people now have spoken. Medicare for all is the way to go because it's it's common sense. Anyone who has Medicare, they like it. So all we have to do is we take our existing Medicare program, we improve it, and we expand it to everyone. And guess what? Healthcare will then be free at the point of delivery. You no longer have to pull out a credit or debit card anytime you go to see your doctor. You no longer have to pay your monthly health insurance premium and then have to pay more when you go to the doctor because, oh, it looks like your health insurance provider only covers X percent of this. I mean, it, it, health insurance is the biggest scam in the country. The biggest scam in the country. So if there's ever been a time to push for Medicare for all, now is the time. Now we ramp up the pressure because we have both sides on our side. They're with us now. Republicans are with us now. Could you believe that? I, I honestly am a little shocked. We were kind of seeing that it, it was moving there because we saw that a plurality of Republicans support Medicare for all. We saw that some Trump supporters support Medicare for all. There were some articles about that, and those were anecdotal examples, but that was the start. And now, just the majority, it may be a slim majority, but a majority nonetheless of Republicans support Medicare for all. This is such good news. When there are large, multi-billion, multinational corporations like Amazon and Walmart that pay their workers such low wages that they're forced to go on welfare, what do we call that? 
We call that corporate welfare because the taxpayer is forced to subsidize the wages of workers since companies like Amazon are too greedy to pay their workers a living wage. Well, thankfully, Bernie Sanders has concocted a brilliant new plan to stop corporate welfare or at least incentivize these multi-billion dollar corporations to pay their workers a living wage once and for all because if they don't they will be penalized for it now as gideon resnick of the daily beast reports senator bernie sanders is amping up his battle against large corporations like amazon with a new bill set to be introduced on september 5th according to the senator's office the legislation would create a 100 percent tax on large employers equal to the amount of federal benefits that the employer's low-wage workers receive for instance if an amazon employee gets 300 in food stamps amazon would be taxed 300 at a time of massive wealth and income inequality, the gap between the very rich and everyone else continues to grow wider, Sanders said in a statement. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, the wealthiest person on earth, has become a symbol of that inequality and greed. The statement continued, while Mr. Bezos is worth $155 billion and while his wealth has increased $260 million every single day this year, he continues to pay many Amazon employees wages that are so low that they are forced to depend on taxpayer-funded programs such as food stamps, Medicaid, and subsidized housing just to get by. The proposed legislation, however, does not specifically target Amazon. While Mr. Bezos is the most egregious example, Sanders explained, the Walton family of Walmart and many other billionaire-owned large and profitable companies also enrich themselves off taxpayer assistance while paying their workers poverty-level wages. That is why I am introducing legislation in September to demand that Mr. Bezos and other billionaires get off welfare and start paying their workers a living wage. So this is forcing these multi-billion dollar companies like Amazon and, um, and Walmart to stop sucking off of the government's teat and to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and actually pay their workers a wage so taxpayers don't have to make up the deficit. I mean, if you have a worker that's working 40 hours per week and they have to go on welfare, that's absurd. You should be able to not just support yourself if you're working a full-time job, but you should be able to have extra money to be able to live at least a somewhat luxurious life. You should be able to buy video games or makeup or whatever the hell makes you happy. But the fact that people are working full-time jobs and they can barely even pay rent, it just speaks to the failure of our capitalistic system. And what Bernie Sanders is trying to do here is even the playing field. And if we're no longer having to subsidize the wages of Walmart workers and uh, Amazon workers, then guess what? That frees up more money. It makes more money available that we can reinvest into social safety net programs. So overall, this is about strengthening our social safety net. And Bernie Sanders, really, in, in creating this bill, not only is it bold, it's brilliant. Because it was something I didn't think about. But I feel like if this were to ever pass, it would work. And certainly, if it ever were to pass, we would see the biggest fight ever because we saw the way that amazon responded when the seattle city council introduced a 500 dollars per person head tax on corporations making i believe more than 50 million dollars a year they protested it and they put so much pressure on the seattle city council that they decided to reverse this tax within what i think two weeks 
So if we saw how much they put up a fight against a $500 head tax, imagine the fight they'd put up for this. I mean, and the fact that they're fighting anything, if, if you're as rich as Jeff Bezos, who has more than $150 billion, you should never be concerned about money, ever. You should be making sure that your workers are taken care of, but not only are they forced to work in awful, disgusting conditions where they're not treated like humans, rather they're treated like robots, but they're not even paid very well. I mean, it's disgusting. It's absolutely repulsive to think about the wealth of the Waltons and Bezos, it's nauseating. It really is nauseating, especially taking into account the way that they treat workers. So what Bernie Sanders is doing here is this is so brilliant. And it's certainly going to be a bill that I push hard for as soon as it comes out, because if you want to live in a fair and just society, then it's obviously the case that large multinational corporations have got to pay their fair share. And really, this is only the start of them paying their fair share. It's not, you know, to ask that they pay their workers enough to survive. It seems like, you know, that's a lot given how far to the right the Overton window is in this country. But really, we're not asking them a lot. If you have workers, it's your responsibility to pay them enough to where they don't have to seek out a second job or a third job. Individuals who are boomers, they could work at Taco Bell full-time and be able to buy a house and put themselves through college. And now, even if you work two jobs, there's no way that you're going to be able to get through college without student loans unless your family's rich. There's no way you're going to be able to live, you know, at least not even just a luxurious life, but a comfortable life where you're not worrying about money. It's just, it's not even possible anymore. So we've got to make sure that these companies stop getting away with taking advantage of us. And this is just one small step in ending that and curbing their greed. But there's a lot more that needs to be done, and this is a great start. So uh, kudos to Bernie Sanders for introducing this. I hope more lawmakers get on board. Those who do not, like uh, you know, individuals in what I'd call the corporate Democrat wing of the party, if they don't endorse this legislation and co-sponsor this legislation, we'll know that they're full of shit and they're not actually progressive. So let's see what they do. Last week, we got news that Donald Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, implicated him in a federal crime when it comes to hush money payments made to porn actress Stormy Daniels, who we all know Donald Trump had an affair with. And this is what Michael Cohen said. He made those payments in coordination and at the direction of a candidate for federal office. And that candidate, obviously, Donald J. Trump. Now, the reason why this is huge news is because since this payment was made in service of the campaign, well, obviously, anything in excess of $2,700 is a campaign finance violation. That's a federal crime. Now, additionally, within the span of a week, Trump's top allies, like Paul Manafort, was found guilty on eight different counts, including tax fraud and bank fraud, and some of his former close allies, like David Pecker of the National Enquirer, decided to flip on Donald Trump. And now, we recently got probably what will be the most troubling news for Donald Trump, because his former CFO, the CFO of the Trump Organization, who knows all of Donald Trump's finances like the back of his hand, has now flipped. This is 
absolutely monumental. So as Jen Kirby of Vox reports, Trump Organization Finance Chief Alan Weisselberg has been granted immunity in exchange for giving prosecutors information for the investigation into Donald Trump's former personal lawyer and fixer Michael Cohen and the hush money payments Cohen made to women during the 2016 presidential campaign. The Trump Organization CFO's cooperation is the latest twist in the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office's prosecution of Cohen, which began with an FBI raid in April. This week, Cohen pleaded guilty to eight federal charges implicating the President of the United States in those crimes. Weiselberg is perhaps not as visible a figure in Trump world as Cohen, but he might be even more important. He served as the Trump Organization's chief financial officer since 2000, so if anyone knows about the company's financials, it's him. Weiselberg was subpoenaed in the investigation into Cohen, though it hasn't been confirmed that he has actually appeared before a grand jury, according to the Wall Street Journal. He has met with prosecutors, but the information he's provided, including whether Trump knew about the payments to the women, is still a question. The raid on Cohen was often seen as the biggest legal threat to Trump, but Weiselberg talking might be an even bigger problem for the president. As the New Yorker's Adam Davidson, who has covered the Trump organization extensively, predicted, get ready for the autumn of Alan Weiselberg. A former Trump Organization employee told NBC reporter Katie Turr last month after news of his subpoena broke that Weiselberg knows where all the financial bodies are buried within the Trump Organization. He knows Trump's net worth. He knows any and every expenditure out of Trump Org was approved by Alan. So knowing how corrupt Donald Trump is, knowing how much of a sleazy businessman he was... How many lawsuits there was against him. If Donald Trump's CFO is flipping, I am inclined to believe we may be witnessing the beginning of the end of the Trump era. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case because honestly, I don't know. And there's a lot of details that I'm honestly still a little bit perplexed by. Like, for example, I don't know why Michael Cohen is saying he'd reject a pardon from Donald Trump. I don't know why he hasn't agreed to cooperate. That's not part of his deal. There's a lot that I'm I'm confused by, and I think a lot of people are confused by because we have to wait until the Mueller investigation concludes, and we're kind of just all speculating as this plays out. But certainly, even if we don't know for sure if this is the beginning of the end, if there is an end to Donald Trump's administration that results in impeachment, this is this is certainly the beginning of that end. But we we simply don't no. Um, but it's not looking great for Donald Trump. And in an interview with a Fox News host, he was even talking about why we shouldn't impeach him. You know, I guess it's a something like high crimes and all. I don't I don't know how you can impeach somebody who's done a great job. I'll tell you what, if I ever got impeached, I think the market would crash. I think everybody would be very poor. Because without this thinking, uh, you would see you would see numbers that you wouldn't believe in reverse. So I haven't really talked about the Stormy Daniels situation. I haven't given you an update to the investigation that Mueller is doing that resulted in numerous indictments of Trump allies because I wanted to wait until there was a more substantial development. And this is certainly a very significant development. And as you can see, I kind of have a smile on my face, right? Because Donald Trump may very well be impeached. But at the same time, I feel very conflicted because even though if Donald Trump is guilty, well, he's not above the law. We have to prosecute him. We have to impeach him and lock his ass up if he is found to be guilty. But at the same time, I'm grappling with the fact that this means we're going to get a President Pence. And 
objectively speaking, Mike Pence is worse than Donald Trump. But I think that David Dole made a really good point in saying that progressives would benefit from having Mike Pence as president simply because the anti-Trump hysteria would go away and this would kind of force Democrats to actually come up with specific policies. They can't just be anti-Trump. They actually have to stand for something now because being anti-Mike Pence won't have the same appeal or galvanizing effect that they think it will have. But at the same time, when it comes to policy, Mike Pence is way more dangerous than Donald Trump because Donald Trump tweets every dangerous thing he does. Mike Pence is a lot more calculative. He's someone who is politically astute, who can actually get things done quietly with little opposition. And it's it's iffy, right? But at the same time, if Donald Trump is gone, Mike Pence, I think, would probably, even though he'd run a more competent campaign, he doesn't have that anti-establishment appeal that Donald Trump has, which makes it more likely that someone like Bernie or any Democrat really would win, which, of course, would obviously be preferable. So, this is really interesting, and I don't, I don't have any predictions. Um, certainly, when I when I read these new these news articles, I can't help but think he is screwed, and I think he knows he's screwed. But at the same time, it's it's hard to say because I'm deeply cynical about the American justice system because we've seen elites get off. They we have this two tier justice system where when poor people commit crimes they get prosecuted to the full extent of the law whereas elites they get off scot free so I mean it's possible that even if he is implicated in this crime directly and is charged we don't know if he can be indicted or not but even if that's the case we don't know if this will result in the end of his presidency but certainly I am very interested to hear what um, Weiselberg has to say because. As the article stated, he knows where all the financial bodies are buried. That's huge. So, really, we're playing a game of hurry up and wait, but um, it feels like we're caught in a political movie, and I'm honestly, I am, I'm ready to be done with this phase of American politics where everything is stupid and it feels like we're in the twilight zone and we have a cartoon character as our president. I'm just ready for it to be over. I'm ready to enter a new era of politics where progressives actually have at least some power. So, you know, we'll see how it plays out, but certainly I will keep you guys posted if there's any big developments, but understand that this is certainly something to really pay attention to if you haven't been watching. We ultimately don't know what Robert Mueller, special counsel, will currently find with regard to his investigation into Donald Trump. We all know he's looking into his business dealings, and, you know, odds are he's going to find something because Donald Trump is a corrupt dude. But there's one area where we know Donald Trump is 100% guilty, and that is when it comes to war crimes, crimes against humanity, because he just did something that is completely unforgivable. So according to Sarah Lazare and Shireen Al-Adimi of In These Times, with little public attention, President Donald Trump used his August 13th signing statement for the $716 billion National Defense Authorization Act to override restrictions aimed at minimizing civilian deaths in the U.S.-Saudi war on Yemen. The move came just days after the Saudi-led coalition struck a school bus in Yemen's northern Sada province with a U.S.-supplied and manufactured bomb, killing 54 people, 44 of them children. The signing statement is the latest 
convinced evidence that, after three years and tens of thousands killed, the Trump administration has no intention of curbing its role in the bloody war it inherited from Obama. The United States supplies arms, intelligence, and aerial refueling of Saudi and United Arab Emirates warplanes and gives political cover to the war. As in these times previously reported, the 2019 NDAA's restrictions on the war were already insufficient when it reached Trump's desk, merely requiring increased transparency and vaguely defined verification that the coalition is attempting to minimize harm to civilians rather than ending the U.S. role in the Saudi-led war altogether. Yet, the measures were better than nothing, given the failure of Congress to end three years of U.S. participation in the war. But in one fell swoop, Trump dismissed roughly 50 statutes included in the NDAA, claiming that the provisions unconstitutionally tread on his executive authority. So I just want to pause there for a moment. As we get all of these stories about U.S.-made bombs killing children, executing innocent civilian children in Yemen, a normal rational human being would respond by saying, let's pull back on the war. At a minimum, we're going to implement a lot more stringent requirements with regard to the rules of engagement, so we might make sure this doesn't happen. But someone who actually has a brain would say, okay, enough is enough. It's time that we pull out. We can't let this happen. There's been, what, more than a million cases of cholera. Uh, children are dying in Yemen. It's time we pull out. Trump didn't even do the bare minimum. In fact, he went in the opposite direction that he should have went in. He loosened the rules so the Saudi-led coalition can kill even more civilians with impunity. This is disgusting. And what was his excuse? He said that, you know, um, these provisions unconstitutionally tread on his executive authority. Well, you know what? Fuck your executive authority. Your executive authority means nothing to the Yemeni children who are being bombed by the bombs that you gave to Saudi Arabia, you disgusting piece of human filth. And he campaigned as someone who was against war, who thought that our leaders were, quote, stupid for getting us involved in so many wars. And what is he doing? He's not only continuing the U.S. empire's wars, he's expanding it, and he's making sure that we can kill even more civilians with impunity disgusting. So, what specifically did Trump do away with with regard to these provisions? Well, the article continues. Among Trump's targets is Section 1290, which stipulates that before greenlighting the refueling of warplanes, the Secretary of State must certify that Saudi Arabia and the UAE are minimizing harm to civilians, mitigating Yemen's humanitarian crisis, and trying to end the civil war. That provision was already weak, offering a waiver in cases of U.S. national security interests, which are often invoked by U.S. officials who misleadingly overstate Iran's influence in Yemen to justify intervention. Furthermore, the measure relied on Mike Pompeo to tell the truth when the U.S.-backed coalition already claims to be mitigating the humanitarian crisis 
crisis and trying to end the war, despite overwhelming evidence otherwise. As limited as the provision is, Trump claims he doesn't have to comply. In his signing statement, he cites the president's executive constitutional authorities as commander-in-chief and as the sole representative of the nation in foreign affairs. Meanwhile, there is no question that the U.S.-backed coalition is exacerbating the humanitarian crisis with its new attack on the port city of Hodeidah, a conduit for as much as 80% of Yemen's food and medicine imports, despite warnings that such an offensive would be catastrophic. Since it began on June 13th, the U.S.-Saudi coalition's assault on Hodeidah has displaced more than 300,000 people and has killed residents with airstrikes such as an August second attack on a fish market and hospital that took at least 40 civilian lives. Trump also sidesteps Section 1274, which requires the Defense Department to review the actions of the United States and Saudi-led coalition in Yemen for illegal conduct, but Trump declares in his signing statement that he reserves the right to withhold information that he determines could impair national security, foreign relations, law enforcement, or the performance of the president's constitutional duties. So, this is despicable. I don't have much to add. I think that this article and the news really just speaks for itself. Donald Trump is a war criminal, and the blood of innocence will forever stay in his hands. He's a criminal. There are no words for what a disgusting time we are living in. There, I just I can't describe it. The U.S. empire has gotten so morally bankrupt that we no longer even pretend to care about human rights and civilian casualties. We don't give a fuck about them. Trump is loosening the rules of warfare to make sure that they don't have to take as much precautions to save lives of innocents who are not involved in the war, who aren't rebels, who aren't fighting us. It's disgusting. And everyone should be outraged but in order for that to happen in order for us to nationally become conscious conscious and aware of what's happening the media has got to do their job and it's just not happening independent media can talk about this every day it doesn't matter people tune in to mainstream media by and large and if cable news isn't talking about it nobody cares about it and that's what's really heartbreaking about this story i want to talk about john brennan who, as you all know, is the hashtag resistance's newest hero because he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Donald Trump. He criticized him, and subsequently, Trump decided to revoke his security clearance. And everyone in the mainstream media, for about a week straight, was all crying for John Brennan because he was the victim. And look, the mainstream media, they set the national agenda. They basically determine unilaterally so what's important and they've chosen to focus on this idiotic story which is not important even in the slightest it's completely inconsequential it doesn't affect any of our lives but yet they chose to focus on john brennan pretty much consistently for about a week and a half i want to say but let's talk about john brennan because john brennan is someone for those of you who don't know who actually played a role in george w bush's torture program. Great guy, right? He also defended Obama's use of drones, even after we learned that the number of civilian deaths they were causing 
was a lot larger than they initially had expected. And he's also widely believed to be the architect of President Obama's extrajudicial kill list. And yes, I said kill list. He had a kill list. He's the one who created this kill list for Obama. So any rational human being should view someone like John Brennan with just disgust because he's an objectively immoral human being who is self-serving, who's, who's only complaining about his security clearance being revoked because it helps to give him this national platform. And when you're an opportunist, you're going to take any attention that anyone is willing to give to you. And really, if you if you are in opposition to, to Donald Trump, that's a really great way to become a hero in mainstream news. But the fact remains that this is not an important story. Now, is it the case that Donald Trump likely revoked John Brennan's uh, security clearance because he criticized him? I think it's definitely the case, but that doesn't really matter. It's, it's not important. It's just not important. If you care about this, I don't know how you're not thinking about other issues. Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean drinking water. Trump just loosened the rules of engagement in Yemen so the Saudi-led coalition can kill civilians with impunity. Why are we talking about John Brennan? But either way, you know, the hashtag resistance made him their newest hero. And as a result, Bill Maher brought him on the program. I guess he was scheduled to be on the program for months. But nonetheless, he brought him on the program and Bill Maher kissed his ass the entire time, and it was just disgusting to watch. He is a distinguished scholar at Fordham and the University of Texas, and was President Obama's CIA director, who you may have heard recently lost his security clearance, a true American patriot. John Brennan. Woo! I don't usually say it's an honor to have somebody on my show, but it is an honor to meet you and have you here. And I know, and I want people to know, we had this booking a long time ago. This isn't just because of the events of recent weeks. You were scheduled to come here, and I thank you for honoring it. And, uh, you know, some people on the right have accused you of uh, wanting to monetize. That's their argument against you. You're not here to monetize anything, are you, John? Uh, no, uh, I am not. I didn't ask to keep my security clearances. Former directors don't do that. We keep those clearances because sometimes those in government sure. want to be able to avail themselves of our experiences, our expertise, our our um, knowledge about certain issues. Uh, so people serve on commissions. Sometimes they serve on private sector boards, whatever. But this is the first time in 38 years that I haven't had a security clearance. And uh, the basis uh, for the revocation is, uh, is bogus. Um, yeah. Mr. Trump and his administration didn't adhere even to the process that they reaffirmed last year. And the politicization of security clearances, either the granting or the revocation, is a real threat to our national security which is why so many people came out and opposed uh, his action. And so I certainly hope... So many that, people yeah. came out for you. Uh, Admiral McRaven <laughs> said... He, he said, please revoke my security clearance. It would be an honor, considering what you did to Brennan. Yeah, so everybody with a brain is on your side. Uh, it's interesting... Jared and Ivanka still have clearances. You, one of the guys who was the architect of getting bin Laden, does not. Yeah. Well, it uh, seems as though Rand Paul was the one who put this idea yes. in Donald Trump's head. And Dead to me, Rand Paul. Uh, yeah, well, Rand Paul has never served on the Intelligence Committee. He knows not of which he speaks. Uh, but yet he has this impression <laughs> that... 
I'm monetizing security clearances, uh, so he continues to spout out on these issues. But uh, again, I believe very strongly in the principle that national security is one of the most sacred and solemn professions uh, in, in this government. And every American citizen deserves to have national security professionals, intelligence professionals, who are not going to be political, not going to be politicized, and no president ever should take that uh, uh, capability away from them. And that's about all that I could take before I had to stop watching. It it was just insufferable. They went on after that discussion that you saw to talk about treason. They they just <laughs> if you are rich like Bill Maher and you know you're an elite and an oligarch and you have power like John Brennan, you have to manufacture things to be outraged by. Because there's nothing that the government can do personally to improve your life so you have to find your sense of purpose by being outraged by just the most dumbest benign things ever so let's address some of the claims made here is it true that trump revoked john brennan's security clearance for political purposes yes i think that's a fact nobody's questioning that and sure you shouldn't generally revoke people's security clearances for political purposes of course that's arbitrary and it's it's not it's not a good thing to do generally speaking is it also true that jared kushner and ivanka trump should not have their security clearances of course that's true these are individuals that have absolutely no experience in government whatsoever and only got their jobs because ivanka is his daughter and jared is his son-in-law that does not give you the expertise needed to have security clearance so of course they shouldn't have it but is it true that John Brennan not having security clearance poses a national security threat to the United States? Of course, that is not the case. And understand that that was never explicitly stated in this clip. Brennan specifically said that politicizing security clearances poses a threat, which that still doesn't. But the implication was that John Brennan not having security clearance is somehow bad for the United States. But in actuality, it's only bad for John Brennan. And the reason why it's bad for John Brennan in particular is because networks like MSNBC, CNN, even Fox News can no longer bring him on as a quote expert because he no longer is privy to insider information. And he's mad about that because, you know, how are you going to make money if you don't have that insider information anymore? That's what this is about. This has nothing to do with national security. John Brennan not having his security clearance does not threaten U.S. national security. They say everything threatens U.S. national security. Anytime that they, they want something, that's the argument that they'll make. Well, look, me not having a million dollars, that threatens U.S. national security. So you should probably give me a million dollars. Me not having... An Xbox threatens national security. I mean, that that's how ridiculous this national security argument has become. They use it to, or they invoke that argument to justify anything. And it's just absurd. It's become a meme at this point. Now, I want to get to what Bill Maher said and how he talked to John Brennan because it was just a disgusting display of neoliberal ass-kissing. So, Bill Maher referred to him as a true American patriot. Why? Why is he a true American patriot? Because he spoke out against Trump? Having a kill list doesn't make you an American patriot. That makes you someone who's against America and our values. Um, he told John Brennan, I don't usually say it's an honor to have somebody on my show, but it is an honor to meet you and have you here. And he said, anybody or everybody with a brain is on your side. 
So the implication is that you have to be on John Brennan's side because John Brennan is critical of Donald Trump. And if you are not on John Brennan's side, then therefore you must be de facto on Donald Trump's side. Oh, God, this the stupidity that you get from neoliberal hacks like Bill Maher. It, it's just it makes my fucking head explode. Listen, I shouldn't even have to say this, but of course, not caring about John Brennan having his security clearance doesn't mean that you're automatically supporting Donald Trump. I just don't care. <laughs> I think normal Americans who are struggling and living paycheck to paycheck, they don't care at all. They don't give a damn about John Brennan's security clearance. And quite frankly, I don't like either of them. I'd love to see John Brennan and Donald Trump in orange jumpsuits uh, sharing a cell at the Hague. Because they're both war criminals. Lock them both the fuck up together. I don't care. But the fact that we all have to realize, well, really that mainstream media has to realize, is that this is not what working Americans care about. Your duty is to inform the American people, to educate the public, to make sure that they are knowledgeable before they cast their votes. I mean, we have a midterm election coming up. Why aren't you covering progressive candidates running? Why aren't you covering any candidates running? It's just, it's... It's really embarrassing, and the fact that Bill Maher is participating in this shenanigans, it really shows how far he's fallen. He used to be one of the better people in mainstream media. He used to be one of the more progressive pundits, and now I think he's he's just such a disappointment. I wouldn't say he's one of the worst, because I think that he's just fallen, perhaps, more so than most, with the exception of Rachel Maddow, maybe, but he's certainly a disappointment, to say the least. New York's gubernatorial race between Andrew Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon is proving that there are two different sets of standards that are applied to um, progressives and neoliberals. If you are progressive and you are supporting a straight white male like Bernie Sanders over a woman like Hillary Clinton or a person of color, what are you? You're a racist, sexist Bernie bro. However, if you're part of the establishment and your preferred candidate in this instance happens to be a straight white male that you're supporting over a woman or a person of color or a member of the LGBTQ community, well, you just support them because of policies. So there's this double standard to where if we prefer a candidate who happens to be white and male because they have better policies, well, then clearly it's because we're insensitive to marginalized communities. But when members of the establishment endorse and vocally support individuals like Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon, who's a woman, who's a queer woman, well, then there's no problem. So we've known about this double standard, and it's really crystallizing in this particular race in New York. And it really shows you that the only reason why the establishment decided to invoke identity is because they wanted to weaponize identity politics because that's how they're able to delegitimize progressives. Since they can't compete with us when it comes to policy, they have to find some way to smear us because how else are they going to win? You can't beat us on the merit of our arguments because we just have a better argument. If you're liberal, then you have to be progressive. Otherwise, you're a centrist, right? If you don't support Medicare for all, you're not, you're not liberal. <laughs> you're, you're conservative. So what do they do to compete with us? Well, they just smear us. That's their go-to tactic. So on that note, with that in mind, I want to talk about the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest LGBTQ rights organization in the country. Now, as you all know, in 2016, they decided to endorse 
Hillary Clinton, someone with a very homophobic past over Bernie Sanders, who literally fucking endorsed gay marriage in the 70s and fought for gay rights throughout his whole career. Now, at that point, they lost all the legitimacy that they once had, but they now have an opportunity to make it up to us. They can endorse someone who's really an easy endorsement. Uh, Cynthia Nixon, she's a queer woman, and she also has great policies. Why would they endorse someone like Andrew Cuomo if he represents the establishment and the establishment isn't the best voice for members of the LGBTQ community? So did they make it up to us? Did they endorse Cynthia Nixon, a queer progressive woman, over a white male, Andrew Cuomo? Nope. They decided to endorse Andrew Cuomo, making a mockery yet again of their once credible organization. Now, as Dominique Holden of BuzzFeed News explains, the nation's biggest LGBT group is trying to defeat a liberal queer woman in the New York governor's race, exposing a rift within the LGBT movement amid one of the most closely watched Democratic primaries of the year. The human rights campaign has thrown its weight behind Governor Andrew Cuomo, who will appear on next month's ballot. A centrist by Democratic standards, Cuomo, who is straight, has indisputable bona fides as both an LGBT ally and critic of President Donald Trump, but Cuomo also carries baggage for exacting pain on unloyal progressives, backing lawmakers who blocked progressive LGBT bills, and undermining the New York City subway system. Yet the most upsetting aspect of HRC's endorsement, critics say, is that the group snubbed Cynthia Nixon, a bisexual woman and longtime political activist. The human rights campaign endorsement hurts Cynthia Nixon's chances. New York City Councilmember Jimmy Van Bramer, a gay man who was endorsed Nixon told BuzzFeed News. He said the group is chipping away at support for a queer woman whose platform reflects much of the state's diverse, transit-reliant LGBT base in New York City. The human rights campaign's views reflect a more established faction of the LGBT movement, which has invested in career politicians who know how to pull the levers of power. This thinking tends to relegate more populist activism to the province of naive dreamers. Yet, the centrist approach to LGBT rights is tied to a dream of its own, that advocates will be able to rely on the Democratic Party's moderate factions to deliver LGBT equality long term. So let me say this, as an organization that was created and is based and driven by the goal of LGBTQ equality, they shouldn't have endorsed Cynthia Nixon because she's a queer woman, right? Because if Andrew Cuomo in this instance had the policies that would that are more suited to help members of the LGBTQ community, then certainly thinking of the rights of LGBTQ people, they should have endorsed him. The reason why, however, they should have endorsed Cynthia Nixon is because her policies are what actually will help more LGBTQ New Yorkers overall. She wants to abolish ICE. She wants Medicare for All. She wants universal rent control, criminal justice reform. These are all policies that benefit all voters, but they particularly benefit low-income members of the LGBTQ community, who, in theory, the human rights campaign should also care about, but instead, they're simply serving the establishment, and they are endorsing Andrew Cuomo for whatever reason, because they want to make sure that they prop up the establishment. They'd rather endorse someone who pays lip service to LGBTQ Americans over a queer woman who has policies that would help everyone, low-income LGBT individuals included. I mean, 
I'm ashamed that I was once a card-carrying member of the human rights campaign. I proudly had their uh, logo as a bumper sticker on my car for the longest time. I canvassed for them before, and I am embarrassed to have done that. If you support LGBTQ people, do not give your money to this establishment loyal organization because they're proving, and they proved yet again, they don't give a flying fuck about members of the LGBT community. They just endorsed someone whose policies wouldn't help members of the LGBTQ community as much as Cynthia Nixon's. So this whole organization, they're undermining their core cause. They're hucksters. If you truly care about LGBTQ rights, don't give your money to the human rights campaign. Take that money and look up a local LGBTQ youth shelter and give to them instead, because they could certainly use that funds more appropriately. If you give your money to the human rights campaign, what are they going to do? They're going to lobby establishment and career politicians who don't really care about LGBTQ rights, but they just say they do because since they're so conservative, that's the only thing that they can do in endorsing LGBTQ equality and proving to us that they're liberal at all, but they're not. They're neoliberal. Her policies, Cynthia Nixon poli Nixon's policies, would help more LGBTQ people than Andrew Cuomo. And look, let's be real. Organizations like Planned Parenthood, even if they provide a crucial service to low-income women, we have to be realistic about the fact that they are part of the establishment as well. Because Planned Parenthood, at the end of the day, they're harmful to long-term progressive causes. They're against Medicare for All because that obviously existentially threatens them. Because every, if every single person in this country has access to healthcare and it's free at the point of delivery, then there will no longer really be a need for organizations like Planned Parenthood. So understand that these organizations, they still have some good, well, maybe not the human rights campaign, but Planned Parenthood does. But at the end of the day, these organizations... They're only now just propping up the establishment. They've overstayed their welcome. They no longer are a net good for members of the LGBTQ community. In fact, I'd argue that the human rights campaign is now hurting the community it's supposed to be helping. And that is despicable. They should be ashamed of themselves. They care about the establishment and neoliberalism, and they just proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt here. Even though we haven't been living in a post-net neutrality world for very long, we're already seeing companies like AT&T brazenly violate the principle of net neutrality by rolling out plans that force you to pay extra if you don't want them to throttle your video quality. And now, we're seeing how the repeal of net neutrality is negatively impacting Santa Clara County, California firefighters who were throttled by Verizon as they were using their Verizon service to communicate with each other in order to mitigate the disaster that has been going on in California. Now, as G G. Sohn of NBC News reports, Federal Communications Commission Chairman Ajit Pai and his staff are fond of taking to Twitter to assert that in the just over two months since the repeal of the FCC's 2015 net neutrality rules took effect, the internet remains free and open, and that opponents' concerns that unconstrained broadband providers will act in a way that harms consumers and competition are overblown. The 2015 rules prohibited broadband providers like Verizon, Comcast, and AT&T from picking winners and losers by blocking, throttling, or otherwise discriminating against or favoring certain internet traffic. 
Pai's rose-colored glasses were smashed this week when it was revealed in the lawsuit challenging the repeal that Verizon had severely throttled the Santa Clara County Central Fire Protection District's so-called unlimited broadband data service during the Mendocino Complex fire, the largest in California state history. The FPD has attempted to use the broadband service to provide crisis response and essential emergency services, but it had been slowed to dial-up speeds since December 2017 and then in a series of increasingly desperate emails this June and July, the FPD battled with Verizon, begging them to cease the throttling and warning the company of the potential harm to public safety during major emergencies and disasters. It wasn't until the FPD agreed to pay more than double the cost of its previous service that Verizon ended the throttling. Verizon's response to this episode was that it was solely a customer service, quote, mistake, and that the situation has nothing to do with net neutrality or the current proceeding in court, but nothing could be further from the truth. This event has everything to do with net neutrality and the Trump FCC's concurrent abdication of its responsibility to protect consumers and competition in the broadband market. Had the FCC maintained its oversight over broadband, the FPD could have filed a complaint alleging that Verizon's throttling of its emergency services and doubling of its broadband costs were unjust and unreasonable charges and practices prohibited by Title II. But the repeal made that option impossible. So I'm wondering if all of the people who came out against net neutrality in 2017, like Ben Shapiro, Ajit Pai himself, I'm wondering if they're going to issue a, a retraction of their statement that proponents of net neutrality, by and large, were being alarmist and that we, you know, we were crying that the sky was falling when nothing would happen. Because look, here's a disastrous consequence of no net neutrality. Now, the FPD has no legal recourse because you repealed net neutrality. They can't file a complaint. They can't do anything because Verizon is violating Title II. You have left them with no options. And for Verizon to offer unlimited, but throttle them to the point where they're getting dial-up speeds, is that not an anti-consumer practice? Of course it is. Of course it is. So because Ajit Pai and the FCC decided to listen to internet service providers like Verizon, Comcast, AT&T, and mind you, Verizon was his former employer and will probably be his future employer. Well, this is what happens. This is what it's like. These are the consequences that ensue in a world with no net neutrality. And let me remind you that we've only been living without net neutrality for a couple of months and we're already seeing these companies brazenly violated. And this is only the beginning. So it's going to get worse. So understand that the more that they do this, here's what we have to do as citizens. We have to show up to local city council meetings and it's time that we start pushing for public broadband because that's the way to go. If these internet service providers don't want to play by the rules, then we subvert their authority and their anti-competitive practices and we form our own broadband. I mean, you just have to look at examples of public broadband and you'll quickly see how well it's working and just how much the citizens there love it. Chattanooga is an example of what can happen if public broadband is adopted. So if these companies want to be greedy, then we need to do everything in our power to start pushing even harder for public broadband because that honestly will end this net neutrality debate in this country. Now, certainly there are court proceedings. The FCC is being sued. 
but we don't know how that's going to turn out. And honestly, it's not a sure bet. So we have to cover all of our bases. And it's time that we have, as citizens, we take matters into our own hands and we start fighting to establish public broadband. And anyone could do it. You watching this video, you can do it. You just have to go to city council and petition them for it. But do so with evidence. Bring them articles about Chattanooga. Bring them articles about the benefits of public broadband and why internet service providers, they have monopolies, they're anti-competitive, they're anti-consumer, and there's nothing you can do if you don't like what Comcast is doing. Well, tough shit. You can't cancel because then you're just left without internet. So I'm just, I'm so sick of internet service providers exploiting their customers. Just last night, I, I lost internet for hours and it happens all the time and I have Comcast. I mean, they are not accountable to us because they don't have to be accountable to us. They make money off of us. They raise the prices all the time, all the time. And if you complain, you get this half-baked automated response because they don't have to care about customer service. Because again, what are you going to do? You're going to cancel? Where else are you going to go? It's like an, a, an abusive relationship and you can't leave. So I say it's time we start putting our plans in place to leave. We push for public broadband. And certainly, if you live in a state who has not done anything to protect net neutrality, be it a governor, you know, um, unilaterally demanding that um, the state doesn't do business with any ISPs that violate net neutrality, or, you know, a state legislator fighting for net neutrality, if you live in a state that hasn't done anything, you've got to take action because that's certainly unforgivable. If, if there's an issue where... A majority, the overwhelming majority of the country, really, including a majority of Republicans, are on board with that. There should be no question. It's not controversial. State lawmakers should act, but they're not acting. And the nullification of net neutrality using the Congressional Review Act has just stalled in the House, and it's probably going to die in the House. So we have to stop relying on these corrupt lawmakers who take money from Comcast and Verizon and AT&T and all the companies that want to screw us over. And we've got to push for public broadband. So we've got to do it. And, um, this is just disgusting. I, I, you know, expect someone like Ajit Pai to come out and apologize because this is specifically his doing here. He, in repealing Title II, fucked over the Santa Clara County Fire Department. He made this possible, but he's not going to even admit to it or own up to it. He's going to pretend as if everything is peachy keen and that net neutrality, it never was, you know, essential even if it's proving already that we need it because things are already happening that demonstrate the importance of net neutrality. So as you all know, over the weekend, we got news that Senator John McCain from Arizona has passed. He lost his battle to brain cancer. And initially, I was not planning to do a comprehensive rundown of his, of his legacy. I generally don't like doing these types of things when politicians pass, even if they were pretty problematic figures. Because I like to allow the family time to grieve. I don't want to, you know, piss on anyone's grave. But at the same time, I think that this needs to be done because there was so much rewriting of history when it comes to John McCain that I think we've gotten to the point where us not telling the truth about him is really harmful because if his objectively immoral and destructive actions are now being rewritten as heroic, then we're lowering the bar not only for what constitutes heroism but human decency in general and almost everyone is guilty of doing this and I, I just can't let misinformation go unchecked so understand that in saying this i wish nothing but peace to his family at this very difficult time i'm in no way 
trying to cause them more pain and suffering. In fact, they're not going to see this video. But my goal is to give you an objective rundown of John McCain's legacy. And when you look at the facts, saying that he's a hero is simply not correct. Now, again, as I stated, everyone is guilty of doing this, including progressive allies. So, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, John McCain's legacy represents an unparalleled example of human decency and American service. As an intern, I learned a lot about the power of humanity in government through his deep friendship with Senator Kennedy. And then we had Representative John Lewis write, Senator John McCain was a warrior for peace. He will be deeply missed by people all around the world. Now, I get it. Right? When somebody passes, you want to say nice things about them. You want to try to remember the good about them. But these are statements that aren't just untrue, but the opposite is actually true. They're fundamentally incorrect. Saying that he's a warrior for peace is honestly, honestly a laughable assertion with all due respect. He was someone who has vociferously advocated for war perhaps more so than any other members of the Senate, with the exception of who, maybe Lindsey Graham? And I mean, if he represents an unparalleled example of human decency, then human decency doesn't exist because, again, this is someone who wanted to invade multiple countries. There wasn't a war that he didn't advocate for and support and tried to goad politicians and presidents into supporting as well. So even if I understand that this is a really difficult time for his family right now, and I hope that he didn't suffer, I hope his last days on earth were peaceful, and I hope that his family has peace at this time, objectivity and truth, that matters, and it's too important. And if, if you follow the truth, then to even consider John McCain a hero is a disturbing thought, objectively speaking. So... We'll talk about his legacy because it's not all bad. I'm not trying to imply that John McCain was the worst member of Congress. In fact, I think his record was relatively mixed, but mostly problematic given his cheerleading of multiple wars. But to say he was a hero, I can't let that stand. I cannot let that stand. So let's talk about John McCain's legacy. It started when he was a soldier during the Vietnam War and actually was captured for two years and tortured during that time, which is why a lot of people refer to him as a hero. And certainly, I can't even imagine how psychologically traumatic that must have been for him to not only be captured for two years, but to be tortured during that time. But we have to be objective and ask ourselves, what was his role in the war? And as Max Blumenthal of Consortium News explains, during the Vietnam War, McCain had been captured by the North Vietnamese army after being shot down on his way to bomb a civilian light bulb factory. Now, even if it's the case that he was likely just following orders, you can't bomb a civilian light bulb factory. That's a war crime. Can we absolutely empathize with him on a human level that he was captured and tortured? Of course, that's awful. But what he was doing was not heroic. He was bombing a civilian facility that would have murdered innocent Vietnamese civilians in cold blood. That's not heroic. Now, even though he survived the Vietnam War, which was one of the most bloody wars in uh, American history, 
you would think that he'd have this sense that he has to stop wars at all costs. He saw war firsthand. He was a POW. He was tortured. So as someone in that position, you'd think the logical conclusion that he would draw in his mind, given his experience, would be that war is awful. We've got to stop it. But the opposite is what happened. He became one of the most, if not the loudest, cheerleader for war throughout his career. And in 2013, Mother Jones put together this graphic showing just how many countries John McCain either wanted to escalate tensions with or outright invade. And this includes Nigeria, Mali, Sudan, Libya, Bosnia, Kosovo, Kuwait, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Georgia, Afghanistan, North Korea, Russia. And even though he didn't say we should outright invade China, he did make troubling comments saying, you know, an Arab Spring would be coming to China, perhaps hoping that there would be regime change there. He was advocating for a new Cold War with Russia, and he would be one of the first people to speak out trying to convince presidents to go to war in these countries that didn't attack us and didn't pose a threat to us in actuality and in his attempts to promote war he ended up inadvertently boosting the profile and trying to normalize quite frankly extremist groups that are really loathsome individuals in countries like libya and syria and he met with a neo-nazi opposition leader in kiev but normalizing these groups even though he knew that it probably would be a risky situation and they weren't necessarily the best characters to get in bed with well normalizing them helped push this regime change narrative since he presumably believed that they'd be able to take control of the country after the u.s invaded and to him he always spoke about war in a really cavalier way so it didn't really matter who who he was promoting and when he was asked what we should do about iran well this is what he said in 2008 it's well documented that we have for quite a long time now known where the real problem is in the middle east and in fact the president adequately described it as the axis of evil i guess my question is how many times do we have to prove that these people are blowing up people now never mind if they get a nuclear weapon when do we send them an airmail message to tehran <laughs> That old, uh, that old Beach Boy song, Bomberan. <laughs> bom, 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 bom. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so to him, the idea of bombing and killing potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of individuals, it's a joke to him. He always spoke about war in a really cavalier way, which is weird because, again, he survived the Vietnam War. He was a POW. How can you advocate for war knowing what you went through and knowing that other individuals would inevitably be, inevitably be in that position? That's not heroic. Being a hero requires you to speak out on things that might be unpopular, that may might get people to hate you. But he was doing the bidding of his donors in the defense industry, even though deep down he knew that war was despicable and harmful and destructive. He pushed for it because he took money from the military-industrial complex. That's not heroic. That's not heroic at all. Now, additionally, he's someone who took great pride in his military service, and 
Yet, he was a staunch defender of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was a discriminatory Clinton-era policy that banned members of the LGBTQ community from serving openly in the military. So, even though he was really proud of his service, he didn't want members of the LGBT community to be able to serve and feel that pride that he felt about his service. Now, the thing about Don't Ask, Don't Tell is it wasn't just like they were forced to keep quiet. This program led to basically a witch hunt, a real witch hunt against service members who were potentially gay or presumed to be gay. They were going through their emails. They're trying to seek out gay people. And individuals were trying to explain this to John McCain that it wasn't just that they had to keep quiet. They were looking for gay people. They were targeting them so they can kick them out of the military. And as he defended it, what did he do when he heard the evidence, when people testified to him and said, look, this is what's happening? He ignored it and repeated a lie over and over and over and over again, as you'll see here. You do not go out and seek, the regulations are, you do not go out and seek to find out someone's sexual orientation. But Senator, that's you not do the not. Way. That is the fact. That is the fact. I mean, I know the military very well, and I know what's being done. And that what is being done is that they're not seeking out people who are gay. And I don't care what you say. I know it's a fact. That's not what I okay? say. I don't care what you say, and I don't care what others say. I've seen it in action. I've seen it in action. I have sons in the military. I know the military very well. So they're not telling you the truth. Just to make sure, we do not go out and seek out private, find out whether someone. No one goes out to see whether someone is. Private emails are not being searched. We do not go out and see see if someone is gay or not. We do not go out and seek find out whether yeah, someone is gay or not. I don't know if they are. I know they don't go out and seek. They do not. They do not. They do not. You can say that they are. You can say they're pictures. I'd like to see. Yeah, I'd like to. That is the case like of Mike Almey, Senator. Bring him to the office. It is not the policy. It is not the policy. But it is it the is case not that it's policy. happening, Senator. It is not the policy. It's not the policy. It's not the policy. It's not the policy. You can say that it is the policy, sir, if you choose to. It's not the policy. I'll be glad to get that to you in writing. And the reason why it was so harmful that John McCain in particular spoke out in support of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was because a lot of individuals believed that he did have credibility when it comes to the military because he was a POW, he served in the military. So for him to say it, well, that kind of lends credence to the claim that, yeah, maybe gay people shouldn't serve openly in the military because it might actually disrupt, you know, current military operations. It might become too big of a distraction. So that was really harmful. He fought for the oppression of gay people who were serving the country. Now, additionally... He got into politics because of his wife. It was all due to privilege. He married a beer heiress who had a father who was very, very wealthy. And his father-in-law contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars to get him into politics. And that worked. Now, within the first couple of years in his life as a politician... He already made some horrible mistakes. He opposed the creation of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but thankfully he eventually came out and said that he regretted that decision. And the thing about John McCain is that even though he's been opposed to what liberals stand for throughout most of his career, 
A lot of neoliberals recently grew to love him because of his vocal opposition to Donald Trump, but that didn't stop him from voting with Trump most of the time. But I don't want to give you the impression that all of his record is bad because there were times where he really did live up to the label of being a maverick. Even if he wasn't a maverick overall, there were times where he did support issues that were championed by environmentalists. He came out against South Africans' apartheid regime and supported sanctions on them. And perhaps one of the most important and powerful stances he took that was good was his support for a ban on torture. It's not about them. It's about us. It's about us. What we were, what we are, and what we, and what we should be. And that's a nation that does not engage in these kinds of, of violations of the fundamental basic human rights that we guaranteed when we declared our independence. Now, if you want to choose to remember John McCain by that, then that's fine. But by and large, when you step back and you look at the totality of his record, was it true that he was a hero? The answer is an unequivocal no. But with that being said, he wasn't the worst U.S. senator. In fact, I'd argue that he was probably one of the more sane Republicans. But at the same time, that bar is pretty low. Overall, he has a horrendous record with some bright spots here and there. I mean, he did shirk Republican Party orthodoxy once in a while, but also is partially culpable in the Republican Party's rising extremism, seeing as though he gave a national platform to a lunatic like Sarah Palin. So, he wasn't a hero, he just has a really complicated legacy. Some good spots, punctuated in a record overall, that is just straight cheerleading for war. Which is not heroic, it's disgusting. Now again, with that being said, like I don't want to be that person who is pissing on someone's grave and trying to demonize them when they can't defend themselves and of course what i what the details that i gave you this is in no way an exhaustive overview of his legacy but my goal is just to give you the truth just because someone died doesn't mean that we have to rewrite history you know in order to remember them part of the truth is that it's objective Sometimes people weren't that great, and dying doesn't suddenly make them good people if their record is deeply, deeply problematic. So with that being said, because John McCain is unable to currently defend himself, not that he'd see the video if he was alive anyway, but since he can't defend himself, I will do what I think is right and just leave you with his last words as to how he wants to be remembered. But, you know, you know the truth for yourself now. What do you want to be remembered for? He served his country. That's what I'd like to see. He served his country, hopefully with the word honorably on it. That's all. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the episode. I want to send a special thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal members for helping the show. If you'd also like to support us, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. Thank you all so much. I will see you next week for a jam-packed episode. And we're talking about 
three guests potentially because I will be going on vacation the following week. So of course I have enough content so that way there's a new video on YouTube every single day. And my guests so far include Ron Placone, Namiki Konst, and I will have Andrea from Connect the Dots on to talk about how we pay for Medicare for All so that way we have an answer when the biased mainstream media asks us about these policies. She has an answer and we're going to talk about that and we'll give you the answer as well. So stay tuned. I will see you all next week. Take care.